Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. If you want to follow along in the Bibles there in your seats, that's page 962. This is the last chapter in the book of Corinthians. We're coming close to the end of our series. On October 1st, we'll begin a series in Malachi. But as you find the passage and prepare to listen to it, let's just acknowledge that as Paul turns towards logistics and travel plans and the organization of a gift to support those in Jerusalem, sometimes when we come to the ends of these letters, we can ignore them because they seem so mundane or pedantic, so common. Where is the theology? Where is the doctrine? And yet, let me encourage you that so very often the gospel is what we need when after a long day we're trying to put food on the table for a hungry family. That we need the gospel in those moments when we are fed up with the driver driving in front of us. That the gospel is for the mundane, it's for the logistics, it's for the everyday. And so let's attend to what God's word has to say for us. What Paul, the apostle of Paul, says to the church in Corinth. What the Spirit says to us. From 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 12. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, in travel plans and financial organization, you have preserved truth for us. Lord, would we heed the authoritative word of you, the living God, would you teach us what we need to know? Would your spirit work in us the ability to respond aright? Would you allow me to speak your truth to your people this morning? And in all the ways that I fall short, would it be quickly forgotten, leaving only the gold you have for your people? In Christ's name, amen. What does the church have to offer? That's a question that when someone is visiting a church, checking out a church, they might ask, what does this church have to offer me? Does it have good teaching? Does it have a good men's program or women's program or kids program? Do they have comfy seats? 
do they have a stylish place? Sometimes we ask that when we're visiting a church, we need to make a decision about the church. And sometimes we ask that question when we're in a church and struggling. What does the church have to offer me? It's hard. I feel lonely. What is it offering me? So very often we come with that question to not only the church, but all forms of communities and opportunities and institutions. We live in a culture of consumption that looks at the world and the objects in the world, that sees the people in the world, and we ask the question, how can that benefit me? If I take that, if I buy that, if I get that, how will it help my reputation? How will that help my comfort? How will that help me accomplish my goals? The culture we live in shapes the way that we often look at the church. But a consumeristic culture is not new. It may be amplified by our media and advertising, the availability of all kinds of objects for purchase online. But a consumeristic approach to church existed for the Corinthians as well. The Corinthians are struggling with pride. They're struggling to live out their life because they have heard this gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet they are continuing to ask how does this help my social network? And if it gets in the way of me eating at these pagan sacrificial meals, maybe I can set that aside. Or how can this help my financial well-being, being willing to sue each other? Or how can I use the gospel to justify my sexual consumption of another? The Corinthians are asking Paul, what does the church have to offer me? Paul, what do you, such a homely, humble, beaten-up apostle, have to offer us? Praise God that when he looks at the church, that's not the question that he asks. For there is nothing in the church that we can offer to God. There's nothing that he does not already have that we can offer Him. And what we do offer to Him in our own strength is marred by sin and rebellion. It is only His provision that we can offer anything back to Him. Rather, when God looks at His church and the potential of the people He calls into the church, He doesn't ask, what can the church give me? But He asks, what does the church need from me? And we know the answer to that question is His Son, Jesus who offers His righteousness in our place, who dies on our behalf so that we could be removed the penalty of our sins, who offers us eternal life, who offers us an eternal inheritance. And so as Paul has just given off talking to the Corinthians of the wondrous good news of the bodily resurrection, he encourages them that they would abound in the work of the Lord according to the good news of that resurrection. In light of that, with that echoing in their hearts and minds, he calls them to give. In light of the resurrection, in light of the gracious gift of God bestowed on us in Christ, how do we live in community but to reflect the generous giving nature of God who is given to us? as Paul talks about this offering for the church in Jerusalem, as Paul talks about his own travel plans and travel needs, as he talks about Timothy's upcoming visit, and as he talks about Apollos' choice not to visit, 
Paul is showing how the gracious giving nature of a God gets applied in the way that we are called to live generously and to give. This morning, as we look at this passage, we'll examine how do we live generously with one another in light of the generosity and graciousness of God towards us. And the first thing I think that we can learn from this passage is that generosity is of the whole church. That is, that generosity is a call to the entirety of the church, not just one segment or another. Throughout the letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been addressing the tendency to divide, to disconnect, and say, well, this call or this gifting is most important, or this manner of speech is most attractive. He's called them to remember that this diversity of gifts and the diversity of the types of people God has called are a gift to the church. And that just because you have a particular gifting and this person has a different gifting doesn't mean you need to be separated, but God has intended you to come together to give of those giftings, to give of those spiritual manifestations of God's power at work among them. But the call to be generous, to give, is not for one part of the church or another, it's for all the church. This is pointed out in terms of geographically, that though Corinth is a rich city with all kinds of commerce because of where they're situated geographically, yet Paul is encouraging all the church to contribute to the needs of those in Jerusalem. He's mentioned already that he's spoken to the church in Galatia. We read in Romans how he also sought gifts from those in Macedonia and Achaia. That all of the church is meant to be involved in this giving. But not only the variety of geographic regions of the church, the whole of the church, but the whole of the individuals within the church. Verse 2, it says this, On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now in Corinth, if you were to go to visit it today, or you were to be given a picture of what Corinth looked like in the days when Paul writes this letter, the names of all kinds of rich men and women cover the city. Men and women who gave money, particularly men, had their names on the sides of banquet halls and temple expansions and roadways and coliseums and theaters and amphitheaters, their names are plastered all over because it was the habit for the rich to give money so that the city could be encouraged, and in return, they got their name plastered everywhere. But God has given his gracious outpouring of spirit and the promise of the resurrection to the whole church. And so the whole church is meant to reflect God's generosity, not those who are just rich, whatever their station of life. And so when some might think that generosity is merely the purview for the rich, those that have extra money, those that can give to the building of a coliseum or an amphitheater, God says that within the economy of the church, giving is for all people. The honor is not just for the rich alone. For the temple of living stones where God's spirit dwells bears the names not just of the rich, but of the poor and of the in-between. 
Every minimum wage worker, every SNAP beneficiary, every billionaire and everyone in between has their name written in the book of life and upon the walls of the church that God is building as his people give in his name. Generosity is for all. Because while generosity might certainly include the monetary and financial, it's not limited to that. It's so much more than that. It is the giving of ourselves which is exhibited in the giving of our finances. That's just one part of what we're called to give in God's name. And so as Paul shares his travel plans, he reveals that as he's considering the weather, and it's not usually a good time to travel in the winter at sea, so he's saying, you know what, I want to come to you when it makes sense to stay with you for a long time during the winter. Why? Because as verse 7 says, he intends to see them for a long time. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. Paul wants to give of himself to the Corinthians. Paul wants to give of himself in discipleship, in encouragement, and in instruction, in the building up that they need to continue in ministry, to stand firm in the gospel, to abound in the work of the Lord that he's given them. Similarly, he asked them to give of themselves to Timothy. He asked of the Corinthians that when Timothy comes to them, that they will take care of him. And part of that will be providing financially and food for his return journey. But also, Paul is concerned that they put him at ease. That they show him respect rather than contempt. That they give him peace rather than conflict. That it's not sufficient for them to see that he's fed and clothed, but they give of themselves in return to Timothy. All of the church is called to give of all that they are in generosity toward one another. Are there places where you might be cutting yourself off from the call to give in response to the God who gives? Certainly that could be monetarily, to the church, to missions, to charities. But what of yourselves? Are there ways in which God has called to give generously of your time and of your presence and of your experience and you are choosing to withhold? Perhaps one place we forget that giving is for all the church is in discipleship. But it is a call for all of the church to give of ourselves and what God has given us in the gospel to encourage brothers and sisters in their faith. Whether that's sharing with someone who is not yet a believer and we want to see them become a disciple of Christ. Whether that is someone who has walked long with the Lord and is struggling and suffering and we want to encourage them walking alongside them whether that's in evangelism, whether that's in Sunday school training up the next generation, being a mentor to someone younger in their faith who needs to be mentored, or it's even peer-to-peer, -peer, we have the ability to give, yes, of our finances, but give of what God is doing in our life according to the truth to see them benefit from that. Discipleship, finances, experience, presence, God calls all of the church to be generous in giving of all that we are because he is the one that made us and we are the ones that are recipients of his grace and called to give in his name. Generosity is of all the church and it should be toward the whole church and beyond. I noted earlier that this contribution of aid is going towards Christians in and around 
Jerusalem. It's not explicitly mentioned in this passage uh, until verse 3, but they know about it. They already knew about it because they're asking him about it. When we see now concerning, they're like, well, what's going on? Tell us how we can contribute. And we should consider the fact that this is a contribution of mainly Gentiles to mainly Jews. To those who were set apart, kept apart by the law, who did not mix socially in a lot of situations because the Jews were often off to themselves in their pursuit of God, the Corinthians are called to give to them. And while our giving might start at home, while we might start with giving to those that are closest to us, we don't stop there. It extends throughout the whole community of God's people to those who differ with us in culture or race, in style and personality or class. And certainly this is at work with what Paul encourages the Corinthians with regard to Timothy. Earlier in the letter in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy's coming to help make sure that the Corinthians apply what Paul has been teaching. That they follow Paul's humble way of life. His adherence to the gospel of the crucified Christ. Paul himself, he can boldly ask that the Corinthians support him when he comes, right? He just assumes that they're going to send him on his way well-provisioned, even as he chooses not for them to pay him. He's confident of that because he's an apostle, that for all the ways that they don't like his style, they don't think he is sufficiently articulate, he comes with the authority of an apostle, and so he assumes that they'll support him. But Timothy is not an apostle. We know Timothy is a young man. He does not command the same respect of position. And now he comes to do something that the Corinthians are going to find uncomfortable. And so Paul makes sure they understand that not only are they supposed to be generous to him financially, but generous to him of spirit and relationship because the temptation will be to push him to the edge. We are often tempted to be generous to only those whom we think are deserving or of our own group of people. But when we learn to give to all of those in the church generously, of our time or our treasure or our talents, we learn to offer to those that are different from us the grace and generosity of God, which then prepares us, shapes us and forms us to help others beyond the boundaries of the church. Paul is ministering for the sake of the gospel. In Ephesus, in Ephesus, there is the opening of a door for ministry. And he's saying, by you bearing with me, by you understanding that I'm not coming now, there is the ongoing capacity of me to serve for the sake of the kingdom and proclaiming the gospel in Ephesus. Even as Paul acknowledges that there are many adversaries. But Paul recognizes that the adversaries are indicative that the gospel is going forth because there is resistance and so the Corinthians are brought to the attention that the work of supporting Paul, the work of supporting the larger church, is not just about caring for our own people. It is about proclaiming the kingdom and the goodness of God to those outside the walls of the church. 
As we learn to give within the church, our habits and our hearts are shaped to extend generosity, not to just to those like us, but to those unlike us outside the church. Who deserves the grace, who deserves the generosity of God? What do they look like? What do they sound like? What do they dress like? What do they smell like? We know the answer to that. No one. No one deserves the grace of God. No one deserves his mercy. No one deserves his forgiveness. No one deserves eternal life. None of us deserve to draw a breath this morning, and yet God gives to the undeserving. Not only does he give, but he lavishes upon us the treasures of the kingdom, adopting us as sons and heirs with Christ. While there are certain circumstances with regard to the how and the when of our generosity, when we open our homes, our wallets, our calendar to other people, we might ask the questions of what is the best way or the best time. But there should be no person to whom we say, I can't or I won't give to them. If it is because we think that they are undeserving, that they are too different, that they are too uncomfortable for us to give to. Because what that reflects is we think that we stand as recipients of God's grace and mercy because there is something deserving within us. Are there people you haven't given the courtesy of learning their names or talking to them after the service or down the street in your neighborhood or at work? Are there people you will tolerate being in the broader community, but you have chosen to offer no warmth and hospitality to, encouragement to? Brothers and sisters, the church is the bride of Christ. His beloved for whom he died, who he has promised to himself, who he will present to himself perfect one day. And all of us are that bride, and all those who we minister the gospel to are potential members of that bride. If Christ loves his bride and gave his very life for her, what would we withhold from the bride and those who might be a future part of the bride? Generosity is of all the church toward all the church and those outside of it, and it's as God provides. We need to remember that our generosity is not an earning of God's favor, nor is it a buying of goodwill from others, but rather it is a response to the gracious giving character of God. And out of recognition that God provides, we then give in response to that provision. And so it shouldn't surprise us that giving is associated with worship here in this passage. Paul gives this detail to the church in Corinth. Not only does he say that they're supposed to gather some of the finances together in preparation of his trip so that they can have it all ready to go, but he gives this particular instruction on the first day of every week. This is what we read of in Acts when the church is gathering together to worship, when they are gathering together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That already as the people of God are beginning to associate the first day of the week with a time of worship and gathering and remembrance of God's mercy to them in Christ, Paul is associating their call to give with that time of worship. 
Now that's not to say that Paul is giving instructions here on the collection for the church. That is to say, Paul is not saying, every week you go to church, give money to the church. No, Paul is giving specific instructions to respond to a particular need, but he frames it within the context of worship because it's in worship that we respond to the mercy and grace of Christ. As God's people gather together to remember that Christ gave his body for his people, we remember that we give because God gave, he gives, and he will continue to give until Christ comes to make all things new. And so we give as God provides. We give as he provides financially. We give as he provides time. We give according to the gifts and the calling he gives us. We give as we may prosper. Notice verse 2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. As he may prosper, we are used to hourly wages, we're used to salaried income, we can set our budgets and our expectations upon a certain level of income. But they're dependent often on what happens in the marketplace, they're dependent on what their crops yield, and so they don't know what the next day is going to provide. And so as Paul instructs them in the Spirit, he says, do it as you prosper. Each week, according to what God has provided, make a determination as to what you will give. It is an act of faith to say, as God provides for me now, I give, trusting that God will give what I need in the future. Certainly such giving is generous. Such giving is sacrificial. Such giving is costly. We are saying my comfort is in Christ, not in the wor- what the world says is enough for me. We're saying my provision is in God, not in how much I've saved up for myself. We're saying my future security is in God and not the marketplace. As God provides, we give out of what he has already given and we give trusting that he will provide for us in the future. We give as God provides. And we give with intention. We give intentionally. Generosity requires intentionality. We may think of generosity as a disposition, almost as a reaction. Someone says, hey, can I borrow five bucks? A generous person says, yep, here's five bucks. And that's true, that that is a form of generosity. But true generosity that reflects the abundant, lavish giving of God is also a discipline, is also an act of wisdom. The one who is generous may certainly give reactively in the spur of the moment, but generosity is also the result of intentionality, of preparation, of planning, with the expectation that we plan to be generous in the future. We want to be prepared to be generous when an opportunity provides itself. And so Paul's instruction here is all about the preparation to be generous. They are to be prepared to give the collection. They are to be prepared to meet Paul's needs when he visits them. They are prepared to know what they are going to need to do with regard to Timothy when he visits them. He is preparing them to count the cost, to take the steps that will enable them to not say, you know what, I'm tapped out. I don't have any more room in the end. My bank account is dry. I haven't been to the grocery store in five weeks. Paul says, these needs are coming. How can you prepare? How can you plan? By setting aside each week a portion 
of what they've received, he knows that will enable them to be far more generous. I mean, we see this analogy in the fact that banks and credit unions figured out, you know what we need to sell to people? We need to sell a Christmas savings club. Because we know how hard it is at the end of the year, suddenly it's after Thanksgiving and all these people need gifts, and we feel like we have to be called generous, and yet we're tapped out of money. So they said, well, we'll create a special savings fund. And you put aside 10 bucks a week or 20 bucks a week. So at the end of the year, at Christmas time, you can be more generous. Paul wants to enable the Corinthians to be generous. So he instructs them to set it aside so that they might give more than they would have if they hadn't made a plan. Paul doesn't doubt that they would give at his coming. But he knows it will be far more if they set it aside every week. It takes discipline. It takes planning. But a generous giver wants to give as much as they can, and so they prepare. We are told that Christ comes at the fullness of time to enact the salvation of his people. The most lavish act of our creator God in sending his son to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life was not a spurious action but it has been something that God has been planning and preparing from the very moment that Adam and Eve fall into sin. In fact, Scripture says even before then, God has set aside those he would save from their sins. But no sooner do Adam and Eve sin against God in the garden than God promises that the fruit of the womb of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And he prepares. He delivers God's people from the flood. He sets aside a covenant community in Abraham to be his special nation. He gives them laws and instructions so that they can understand what righteousness is. He sends prophets to warn them and tell them of God's plan of redemption for them. Brothers and sisters, God has been preparing to give us the most generous gift from the beginning, not just saying at the last minute, here, you can have whatever's in my pocket. He says, I've been waiting for this day. And even now, God is preparing us for the day when all sorrow is removed, where we come into the inheritance that he prepared beforehand for us in Christ. We are to give in the way that reflects the giving of God, who makes a plan to give, who works that plan to give, and is delighted to give more, the utmost according to that plan. There are lots of ways we can be intentional. Financially, we can set up automatic payments to a charity so that we don't forget, so that that missionary doesn't need to come back from the field. We can look into tax and investment opportunities that maximize our giving. We can give consistently instead of feeling overwhelmed with a call to give at one time of year. When we set a budget, when we receive a windfall or we get a raise, we can start with what we want to give rather than waiting to see what's left over. We can have cash in our cars already set aside to give to those in need. We can preserve space in our schedule so that we have energy and time to meet with others. We can look for space that we can make plans with people to get together with them in hospitality or intentional time to gather in discipleship and study in God's word. 
God has given us a day of rest and worship to supply us in him so that we can be restored and renewed for the pouring out of ourselves to others. Do we take advantage of that rest as God prospers us so that we give? And lastly, as we are intentional, as part of the church giving to all the church, we need to remember that this call to be generous is to give for the benefit of others. We give because God gives to us, because God first gave to us. But here's the thing. God does not give us that which is harmful to us, but gives only that which is for our good. What good is it to give apart from the goal of blessing someone else? We might say it's better to give than to receive, but ultimately we shouldn't judge our generosity based on how it makes us feel. We should judge our generosity as whether it is a blessing to those who receive it. We don't give in order to say we are generous. We don't give so we get a plaque on the wall. We give for the sake of others, just as God gave us exactly what we needed. Not less God, not less holiness, but the fullness of holiness and righteousness himself. That's what we needed when we would have often been content to have more money or more food or more relationships or more fame. Paul wants the giving of the church to be of benefit. Just in as simple an act as saying, we want to make sure that the money gets to Jerusalem. You're going to need to pick out some people that are trustworthy. They're going to see that it gets there to the people that need it. So you're going to accredit them with letters. And if there's enough money that we need more people and it's, it's best, I'm going to go with them. Because I want to make sure that that money gets to the people in need. Not lining the pockets of some greedy swindlers along the way. He wants to make those, sure that those that need it will benefit from it. But Apollos, we haven't mentioned Apollos yet, but Apollos also wants to give in a way that helps it seems that not only did they ask about the contributions to Jerusalem, but they asked, hey, when is, when is Apollos coming back? So Paul is answering that question. And you'll remember from the beginning of the letter that, that people in Corinth love Apollos. He's well-schooled in philosophy. He's eloquent of speech. If you want to be baptized by someone, I want to be baptized by someone like Apollos. And so they're eager to know when he's going to come back. But Apollos wants to give in a way that helps. The language indicates that they are inquiring about this return, and then Paul is all for it. I strongly urged him to visit with you, with the other brothers. But was that what Apollos wanted? Was that Apollos' will? No. Well, it's not explicit in the passage. We know, first of all, that Paul has no beef with Apollos. That for all of the division of one crew saying, we follow Paul or we follow Peter, we follow Apollos, he at no time faults Apollos as fomenting this rebellion and division. He continues to uphold him and encourage him and speak well of him. What it seems is that Apollos, who knows that his eloquence and sophistication is attractive to them at this point of division, and distraction, that for him to come and give them what they want would be to their harm. Apollos won't give them what will be to their hurt. 
to give for the benefit of others, brothers and sisters, it requires honesty and relationship. It requires relationship to know what will benefit the other person. And so very often, because we're not God, we don't know what that is. And so we need to ask, what do you need? And we likewise need to be honest and say, this is what I need. Paul says, I'm going to need you to give me money for my journey. I'm going to need you to take care of Timothy. I'm going to need you to put aside money every week to support those in Jerusalem. He has the relationship in the gospel to say, this is what I need from you. Relationship in which we can ask, and relationship in which we can be honest. Paul asks for his needs and he's honest about it. And while he will need their financial support even more, he will need their care. For us, that might look like asking to be mentored. It might look like asking to be taught. It might be asking to be helped with our children who are overwhelming or our yard work when we're sick. Sometimes when we look through the lens of our need, it makes us feel less. And we're saying, well, we're supposed to contribute to the church, but I'm asking. But when we ask, we are giving the church, we are giving our brothers and sisters the opportunity to grow in their exercise of generosity. We are helping our brothers and sisters be more like Christ when we ask for what we need. To be a giving church, we need to admit we are a needy church. That we need, but we trust that God supplies our needs, and one of the ways he does it is in one another. I started by considering the question, what does the church have to offer me? And saying, that's probably not the right question for Christians to ask of a church. What does the church have to offer me? But what of those outside the church? Is that a good question for them to ask? What can the church offer me? I think it's a good question, but you know what? I don't want them to even have to ask that question. That I want us in response to the generous, lavish giving of God to be so disciplined, to be so exercised, to be so habitual in our generous giving that those outside the walls of this church or any church say, what can the church offer me? Well, they can offer relationship. They can offer help with my kids. They can offer meals when I'm hungry. They can offer comfort when I'm sad. They can give me wisdom when I am lost. And most of all, they can give me hope because the greatest treasure that they have is Jesus Christ and they give that out all the time. Brothers and sisters, we have received so much in Christ. Would we give in response? Let's pray. Lord, make us into generous men and women, givers as we have received from you, quick to show that what is within us is only a result of what you have given and so quick to give it as others have need, in the church and outside. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.